We're coming towards the end of our series on Nehemiah, um, and we're reading from chapter 8. It says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the law to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion, Beside him on his right stood Mattithiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Meseah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Milkajah, Hasham, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Hadani, and those guys, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. I just want to read to you one scripture from the New Testament on the occasion when 3,000 people were saved and added to the church in one day. And it says in Acts 2 verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of rediscovering something from your past or or a period when you'd forgotten and and rediscovering it and just bringing great joy and emotion and excitement to you. When have you had that experience of where maybe you've not eaten chocolate for a couple of days and then you eat it again (laughs) and it's like, oh, that's good, isn't it? You had that feeling? You know what I mean? Or, or perhaps it's clothes for you. You reach into your wardrobe and you find that item of clothing that you haven't seen for years. Maybe it came out last night. And you think, oh yeah, and it still fits and it still looks great. It's a rediscovery and it brings you great joy. Or perhaps uh, music. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I came across this old song. And you, you know how music has that ability? It just takes you back to a period of your life where you think, oh yeah, I was happy then. (laughs) I'm happy now too, but it it takes you back and it makes you think of it. Oh yeah, and it takes you to a place and a time and it brings that sense of joy. Have you ever had that experience? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, okay, I'll move on, right. Okay, Or, or perhaps something more emotional, maybe a friend that you haven't seen for a couple of years or a couple of months and then you speak to them, you have a time or an evening with them and you think, you know what, I really miss them. And it's an emotional thing when you reconnect with somebody again. Or maybe the emotions are more complicated. I remember a couple of years ago, it was my daughter Evie's first week at school 
And I was taking her to school, and I had our toddler, Ben, who was just, uh, just under two at the time, I think, with me. And I, I took Evie to school, and all the parents were outside waiting for the kids to go and for the teachers to come and open the doors. And, and uh, I was so taken up with the occasion of saying goodbye to Evie. If you don't have kids, this is a great leveler, by the way. When, when you're in the playground and you're waving goodbye to your kids, there's high-flying accountants, there's businessmen, there's all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. But in front of their kids, they're all like, hi, have a great week. <laughs> And I was so busy doing all of that stuff and saying goodbye to my daughter, Evie, wishing her, you know, blowing kisses, all of that. See you tonight. So when, when she'd gone in and they locked the security doors behind them as they do in schools, I sort of just walked down the street thinking about it and I jumped in my car and I drove up the, the street up Morningside Road and Holy Corn and we got, got to the Costa, you know the Costa at the top of the road here? And then I glanced in my rear view mirror. Now... It might surprise you that it took me that long to glance in my rearview mirror. <laughs> but that tells you the kind of driver I am, perhaps. But when I looked in my rearview mirror, the most awful feeling I think I've ever had in my life filled my entire body, just utter sickness. Because I looked in the rearview mirror, and Ben's empty child seat was in the back of the car. And I realized, aha. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I mean, you, you, you may laugh, but this didn't go on Facebook, I'll tell you. <laughs> In a moment of utter despair and panic, I realized I had left Ben on the side of the road, and I had driven to the office, and it had taken me 10 minutes to, to reach this conclusion. And, and, and my mind turned to utter mush for the next... Ten minutes. I think I probably broke every traffic law going as I was trying to phone and drive back to, to find him. And, and I was trying to ring you know, the school. And all those Finally, but just before I got back to the school, I was about to turn the corner and uh, I got an incoming phone call and, and it was the school and they said, Hello, Mr. Hudson. We've got your son here. <laughs> Fortunately, I'd realised by this point. So it wasn't like, ooh. No, no. That's like, oh, thank, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness for that. And they, and they sort of said, oh, he's fine. They said, we, we don't know how he did it, but he managed to get through all the locked doors, and we found him. <laughs> we found him wandering the corridors. And he, he was a little bit upset, so, and we didn't know who he was, so we took him around the classrooms. <laughs> and we said, does he belong to anybody? And, and she, she says, your daughter, Evie, said, oh, that's my brother. <laughs> so we said to Evie, so did mummy or daddy bring you today? <laughs> As if they needed to ask that question. <laughs> and Evie said, oh, it's my dad. So, so she said, so we, we rang you first. And I thought, thank you. <laughs> I have time. I have time to try and explain this to, to Julie. And, uh, but it, within a, a couple of moments, I'd, I'd turned the corner, and, and I was reunited, a tearful Ben and a tearful dad. And I grabbed him, and I gave him a big squeeze, and I said, keep up next time, Ben. <laughs> But it, but it was mixed emotion. I've got to be honest, it, it wasn't overwhelming joy, just reconciliation. It was, it was a feeling of joy and relief and happiness and feelings of stupidity and idiocy and, and inadequacy and, and emo all of those things all at once. But I was just glad to, to have him back safe. Now, you can't escape the fact that the reading we read today 
was a really emotional occasion. And you might not immediately understand why it was emotional, but in this chapter, they rediscovered something. The people of Israel, they were rediscovering something that that they hadn't appreciated or thought about for years and years. And the sense of this occasion, as it became clear for them, it impacted them at the very deepest level. Do you know, today God wants to impact you at the very deepest level. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're not even a Christian yet. Maybe you think it's about attendance and kind of trying to follow a list of rules. But actually, God's work in your life goes so much deeper than you could ever imagine. And at times, that can be quite emotional. And emotion for some people can be tears and melting and all of that. For other people, emotion of the same scale can be just like, whoa, amazing. Now today, I don't want to to, to make it something for you that it's not, but I want to invite you into a deeper experience of God as we look at these verses together. And I want us to see there's four things that the people of Israel rediscovered in this chapter, and we're just going to spend a little bit of time on each one in these next few minutes together. Here's the first thing that they rediscovered. I'm going to call it rediscovering church because that's kind of what it was in the New Testament reading we read. For them, they didn't understand the word church in the Old Testament, but they understood this sense of being something together. So we read in verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They came together as one. That was how they analyzed the situation. That's how Nehemiah saw it. As he said, all these different people were there in the square. And just a few verses earlier in the chapter 4, it tells you the number of people that were there in the square. There was 42,360 people in that square that day. Now you might think, well, that's not unusual, is it, to have a, a gathering of people? Isn't that just life? You get crowds in places and all that sort of thing. But something much deeper was happening for them. You see, a generation earlier, these Israelites had returned in sort of dribs and drabs to Jerusalem, and they, they, were, they were there to just re-establish Jerusalem. They'd been put into exile in previous generations, and they were now coming back. And when they came back, they didn't really just get on with the task. In fact, there was a, a grumpy prophet by the name of Haggai who had to come and talk to them. And uh, Haggai was one of those guys, he... He, I say he was a grumpy prophet. He, 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 he really just spoke in single sentences. If you went to Haggai's church, then really his messages just had one sentence. And one of his sentences that he gave to the people when they, turned, they, they returned and they started making their homes again, he, he said, well, God's issue with you is this. He said, my house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. He said, this is how it is for you Israelites. You're just all doing your own thing. You're all just building your own house. You're just interested in your family, your bricks and mortar, where you're going to live. And he said, the problem is you've got no sense of identity as a people. You're not building God's house. You're not doing the thing that God's called you to be together. And so they began to respond to that word. They rebuilt the temple. And then under Nehemiah's leadership, they rebuilt the walls together. And something amazing happened during this previous couple of months when Nehemiah led them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the security around it. They became united to a common purpose to rebuild. 
They'd also overcome their own personal issues of ego, oh, where, they, uh, where, where some of them thought, well, I'm not, I'm not a builder, I'm not that kind of person. And they all just mucked in to get it done. And they also learned to fight a common enemy so that when one part of the wall was under attack and some brothers were, and sisters were particularly coming under fire, they would all run as one man and they would come and fight. So whenever the enemy came, they said, wow, this is right. It's just like they're all together. All of the time, we just can't attack any point without them all just acting as one person. What a great description of what church is meant to be. It's a body with one identity. And no matter where you touch it, no matter where you see it, you get this wealth of people and gifting just all rallying together for a common cause. In the New Testament, it says that they were devoted to the fellowship. That word is a Greek word, koinonia, and it really means participation. It means this, that one of the characteristics of that early church in Jerusalem was that it was high on involvement. It was high on participation. You never had a church that you went to. You had a church where you belonged, a community where you were known and where people knew you. A place where people discovered their value as part of community. A place where they overcame issues of ego, where, where it mattered who was who. Where all were equal together. And they learned the secret, as Nehemiah's people did, that when you act in isolation, spiritually things grow cold. When you put a coal on a fire, it quickly lights and it glows red hot. If you take that coal out again and just place it on the hearth, what happens? It, it just cools down. The fire keeps going, but the, the, the coal doesn't. God's designed you and I to be in community together for our spiritual health. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a famous 18th century preacher, said, Some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. You know, God has designed for you and I to be in this together. Isn't that fun? Not always, you say. <laughs> Hebrews 10 says, don't give up meeting together. Have you ever wondered why, he, why it says that? The answer is because there is a tendency in us at different times, and if you're not facing this right now, you will face it at different seasons in your life where you think, you know what, this is hard work. It's harder to, to value community rather than to value isolation. Why is that? Because at times it can be frustrating. Sometimes it can be uncomfortable. I'd imagine in Nehemiah's day, 43,000 people crammed into a square, standing there for hours together. I'd imagine there must have been some people just wanting to break out. People saying, you know what, it's, it's a little bit hot in the middle, it's a bit cold at the sides. Same issues at King's Church this morning. <laughs> you know, when you're together in quantities, it means by the very definition of that, that some things go on that are of little interest to you, but are of broad interest to other people. When you're together, it means that things run the risk of not being so tailored to your personal needs all the time. But do you know that's a good thing for you? Sometimes you can find yourself in seasons of life where Perhaps you have young children and, and, and you can come to church and you think, I'm not sure why I even bothered coming today. Because <laughs> I, I was just 
trapped in a different room with a crying child, and, and it, I didn't feel like I connected. It takes perseverance to value community. And for each of us today, God wants us to value community, to value fellowship. You know, Jesus is praying for his church to be one. And for that, in our context, that means that you and I are to value community. He's praying for you to value other believers. It means that whenever you meet a Christian from a different church, you choose to to speak well of them. And and when you hear negative things about other churches, you say, you know what, I've heard good things about that church. I think they're great people there. Here's a, a great question that you can ask yourself to know whether you value community and church or not. When people speak of King's Church or the church that you belong to if you're visiting, do you talk about them as a they or a we? Because when you start talking about church as we, that's kind of saying, I'm a part. This matters. When you talk about them as a they, it's saying, I'm an observer, I'm a spectator. You're invited today to rediscover God's church. Here's the second rediscovery God wants, to make, wants you to make today, to rediscover God's word. So here's what it says in verse 4 of what we read. It said, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Here it is, right here. Wow. Look at you guys. <laughs> this is great, isn't it? Um, it I just love it. If you're a planner here today or a details person, I think this, this passage speaks high of planning and detail because Nehemiah, he'd thought ahead to this occasion and he thought, what do we need? With 43,000 people, we need a really high platform to be built so that when we start reading out the Bible, everybody can hear it. And so he goes about it. I don't know how long this scaffold took to build, but it was obviously quite a, quite a structure. And he made sure the structures were in place in order that people could hear properly. Now, God's word is to have such a priority in our lives that he wants us to put structures in our life to make sure that we value it properly. And the generations leading up to Nehemiah, they had not valued the word of God as much as they needed to. And part of their emotional response on this occasion is this, that the the law was being read to them. They thought, gosh, we'd forgotten all about this. It happened on other occasions in Israel's history under Josiah's reign, King Josiah's reign. They were doing repairs to the temple. And somebody came across some scrolls and they said, wow, it's the book of the law. You think, how did they miss that? That was the whole thing that defined Israel for what it is. How did they forget about it? I tell you, it happens. When we don't structure our lives around God's word, when we don't prioritize it for ourselves personally and in church life, then it quickly goes somewhere else. Uh, Pretty much every church I've ever heard of in history starts on a strong biblical foundation where people preach and teach the word of God. Yet so many over time and decades and centuries end up valuing other things perhaps above the Bible. And that can happen for you and I as well. What structures do you have in place in your life to make sure you value the word of God? says, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Notice that they invited it. Do you see that? It wasn't Nehemiah saying, right, everybody, we're having a church meeting, and now Ezra is going to be preaching to us, so you better listen. 
No, this was a grassroots movement where the people of God were saying, you know what, what I really need in my life is for God to teach me stuff. So the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask people who are gifted at teaching to climb on that platform and to tell me about God and what his requirements for my life are and what his purpose is and what he wants me to do. You know, that's the sign of a, of a disciple. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Disciples, they, they don't wait to be told stuff. And say, well, nobody preached about that, so I'm, I'm, I'm not... No, they, a disciple says, well, where can I go and be taught? They approach people who, who are more mature in the faith, and they say, what does the Bible say about this? You know, we live in a world now where everybody thinks it's okay just to have an opinion about everything. And, uh, of course, it's okay to have an opinion about everything, but when it comes to the Bible, if there's ten views on, in, in, on different things in here, then... Only one of those can be correct. So it's not okay just to say, well, there's different views out there, so I just pick which one I want. No, that's not okay, because actually we need to, to pursue. Devotion to scripture and devotion to teaching means that we pursue what is correct and we make sure that we submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word, that we put it on the highest level. They elevated the teaching of God's word to the highest place. They respected it as being superior to them. They, they listened and they stood. You know, some churches still do that. Some traditional churches, when the Bible is being read out, that everybody will stand. And perhaps the person reading it, they will bow down and they will, they will kiss the, the word. Because they, they're saying, this book is holy. This book is above me. Therefore, it deserves my fullest attention. When Nehemiah elevated the word of God, it wasn't just a pragmatic thing. It was saying that this book is more important than what I think. In the past, Israel had filled that highest place. They'd filled this highest place here with idols and statues and bales and, and things. They said, well, actually, we're going to give the word of God, or the law of God, we're going to give that a second place because actually what we think is going to really make it work for us is if we worship a foreign god. And God had to reteach them. He said, no, actually, whatever you think, whatever your human ideology, whatever your cultural teaching is, and there are many cultural pressures for us today, that we would think, well, that's in conflict to the Bible. Well, what do we do? Well, we keep the Bible here. We make sure that we keep this in the highest place. You know, the longest chapter in the entire Bible is Psalm 119, which is a psalm which basically just honours the word of God in every sentence. That tells you something about the importance that we're to give it. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. It says, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I know what you're thinking. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have some apostles teaching us today? I mean, I could see why they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, because I bet Peter and James and John, I bet they were brilliant preachers. You know, they'd spent years with Jesus, and, uh, you know, like King's Church, I mean, don't get me wrong, but we've got Matt, Luke, and Dan. And, uh, you know, it's not exactly the early apostles here, is it? You know, so... Now, the good news is that when the Holy Spirit wrote the New Testament and he brought it together from many different people. 
he basically provided the edited highlights. It's like the best of album of the apostles' teaching. Everything that the Holy Spirit wanted to include for our benefit from whatever the apostles taught in that first generation, the Holy Spirit included it in the New Testament for us, which actually makes the job of preaching pretty easy today. I mean, I can't believe I get paid to do this. I just get to read what they said and say, that's right. <laughs> that's basically what preaching is today. We, we read what the apostles wrote for us, and we explain it to people in, the, in, in hopefully exciting and interesting ways. That's what it looks like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. They got it in Nehemiah's day, and, and they got it in the New Testament church, and I really hope that you are making that discovery as well. Here's the third rediscovery they made. Relationship with God. In the New Testament, it says they were devoted to prayer. In, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I don't know if you find prayer hard. So we, we talked about the word being God's... God's message to us, it's God's law to us, it's his word to us. Prayer is our human response to that. And it's not always easy, is it? Anybody here find it hard to pray? Thanks, Mike. Great. Anybody else? I see that hand. No, we all find it hard, don't we? All of us do. And these verses tell us something important about our approach to worship and prayer. And that is this, that notice how it happened that Ezra climbed up the platform. I'm going to get value for money out of this. He climbed up the platform and he opened the scroll. And it was at that point he praised God and the people bowed down and worshipped. It wasn't even anything that he said. It wasn't like a, a response to the teaching that they gave. What I'm saying is this, that it was actually what he was holding in his hands that was the bit that made them want to worship. And that is that those scrolls, which basically were the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the books of the law, those first five books of the Bible. And as Ezra hold, held those in his hands, the people were reminded that there is a God who loves us, and he loves us so much that he's given us his word. Before the word came into the world, there was a sense in which it was darkness. We didn't know what God was like. We didn't know what he wanted of us. We didn't know if we could know him. And God had revealed to, through the people of Israel that they could know God, that they could relate to him on the basis of what he said in those books. And so when Ezra opened those scrolls, people were like, there's a way. There's a way in which we can relate to God. It was based on revelation. That's what I'm saying. Their response of worship was in response to revelation that God was giving. And their response of worship was pretty amazing, really. Now, wonderfully, we get to see so much more of God's revelation. You know, the Bible says that God is revealed in creation through everything that is seen. It's revealed through, through the Word of God. But then Hebrews chapter 1 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. You want to know what God's revelation looks like for us, the thing that causes us to pray and to worship? It's when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, who is God in human form. Colossians 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. When we see Jesus, we see the ultimate of who God is. The Apostle John said, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, they said, Jesus, could you teach us to pray? Because this is hard and you seem to be able to do it well. He said, he said When you pray, you say, Our Father. This is where we start. We start with the revelation that God has made us his children. He's brought us into his family. If you find it hard to pray, then I want to recommend this is the best place to start. Shopping lists are great. Bringing our needs before God is great. All of that. Any prayer is great. But this is the place where we get to start. Being amazed at the revelation God has given us. The things he's done in life. Start by thanking him. Thank him for Jesus. Thank him for his word. Thank him for his creation. Thank him for the blessings he's given in your life. And then as we do that, we begin to find ourselves drawn spiritually, united again with our Father in heaven. Remind yourself of who God is, the revelation he's given. Here's the final rediscovery I want to invite us to make today, and maybe the band could come back as, as we close with this final rediscovery. It's rediscovering grace. And those closing words of the chapter that we just read, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the word of the law. The question is, what were they weeping about? What, what had so stirred their emotion that their response was one of weeping? And I guess... Some of those responses would be similar to us today. Perhaps they'd realized their failure to live in community, to love others as Christ loved us. Perhaps they'd come to realize their own failure to live according to God's word as they'd articulated hour after hour. This is God's standard. Just stop playing, that'd be great, thanks. Um, and uh, it, it, as they realized, amongst the checklist of God's word, that they'd not met the criteria that God had meant for them, and perhaps through generations of neglect, they'd thought, oh, maybe we're doing okay with God, but as it got articulated, they really thought, you know what, we're not, we're not okay with God here. Perhaps today you're feeling like, I'm not okay with God. Perhaps you've been here from the start of the morning thinking, I, I, I'm just not right with him. Maybe, like them, you have seen your failure to offer heartfelt, pure worship. Maybe, like I sometimes do, you find yourself uttering hollow words and you're singing the words and you think, there's just nothing going on in my head. I'm not connecting with God and that alone brings a sense of sorrow. 
you know, where there's failure, there's forgiveness. And Nehemiah urged him, he said, stop crying. Don't do it. You know, God doesn't want you to remain in a place of guilt and failure. He wants to bring you back to himself. And when we read that Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You know, whenever they broke bread in their homes, it was the reminder that Jesus had given his people to say that he'd died for all of their inadequacy, that he'd taken all of their shame and all of their failure. His body was broken for them. His blood was shed for them, for their cleansing, for their forgiveness. Do you know there's not one bit of failure that isn't covered by the perfection of Jesus Christ when he died on a cross? And today I just want to invite you to bring your imperfection and your sense of failure your sense of inadequacy and to bring it to Jesus. There's a scripture in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And it says, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that's to say that there's no failure, no sin that we can bring before God that isn't more than outweighed by the magnitude of his grace. The molehill of your sin is overshadowed by the mountain of God's grace. Today it's time to walk towards God, to recognize that he loves you, it's time to bring our shortcomings to Jesus. It's time to turn to him again, knowing that he has a better plan for us. Perhaps you are feeling drawn afresh into his purpose again today. We're going to close in singing in just a moment. But now there's just a moment for you to respond. We come to a God who takes isolated people, individualistic people, and makes them into his family. He takes opinionated rebels and makes them teachable Christ followers. He takes spiritually dead people and makes them friends. He takes people who deserve judgment and extends grace with a smile on his face. Do you know it today? Do you know that your failure is overcome by him? Do you know that God's not looking at your shortcomings today? He's looking at the wonderful grace available in Jesus over your life. Maybe today, for the first time, you want to receive that grace. Maybe right now, you can ask God to just come and cover all of your failure, past and present and future. If that's you today and you want to receive Christ, just, I just want to invite you to raise your hand just now. I'd love to pray. Is there anybody who'd like to... Thank you. Anybody else?
This is what God loves to do. To take our failure and make it a thing of the past. He loves to do that for you. Perhaps today you're feeling just way down with guilt. And God wants to remind you that he's dealt with it all. Let's return to God as we worship him again.